we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, well, today's a special Sunday. I'm Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're doing something pretty different than we've done. Um, I am actually teaching on the Nicene Creed. What you just saw, the video, what was talked about, is the Nicene Creed, the, uh, the uh, established teaching of the church that was written down in 325 and then disseminated throughout the last couple of histories, uh, last couple of centuries. And uh, my goal here today is to help us uh, be a more faithful church. Uh, there's a lot of surveys that have come out recently. The statistics, the data on self-identifying evangelicals um, are not great. Uh, it's kind of been something that's been burning on my heart for a little while. Uh, there's this Barna study, a sociological study that said 76% of self-identifying evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by the Father, which is heresy. And I've been feeling like uh, so help me God, not in this church. <laughs> uh, I want us to know God. I want us to know God accurately. I want us to see ourselves as part of the, the tr Christian tradition that has been guarding the faith once deposited for the saints. And in many ways, as a pastor, as an elder in this church, I think that what we're gonna talk about today is the most important thing we'll ever do or talk about as a church. The book of Jude, chapter, verse three, says this. Um, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. 
And that, I think, is very much what I'm trying to do here today is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what happened in the Council of Nicaea. That's what the Nicene Creed is all about. And so we're going to do a couple things here as a church that are going to be a little different. We have a, a new practice we're going to start off starting next week. And here's a new practice is we're going to recite the Nicene Creed weekly as a church. So uh, some of you grew up in churches where you recited creeds and things like that. Some of you did not. I did not. And here I am. Um, but you did grow up reciting some things weekly. Uh, you could probably say, um, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Uh, you could probably do all that. Um, but could you say this with me? I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, things seen. No, we can't do that. <laughs> And I think that is to my and our shame. Because the things that we memorize, the things we write in our hearts, the things that we recite and repeat again and again are part of, part of forming our identity and shaping us into God's image and shaping who we're supposed to be. Like even already in my household, my son Jay is repeating the things that I regularly say. The other week he told me, too bad, so sad, dad. You know, maybe I should start saying other things more often, you know. Uh, but here, so here's, here's, the reason we're going to do that is, and so I don't know, so we don't have a new conviction that we ought to say the creed every week. We have a new practice. We're doing it for right now. Is, is here's the goal. Here's the goal. Here's the challenge I have for all of you, all of us, is that we would have the Nicene Creed memorized by the end of this year. Imagine the world 1,700 years from now, what is the world going to be like in the year 3,700? Like we can't imagine 12 years from now. We can't imagine 50 years from now. You can't imagine the world's 1,700 years from now. All I know for certain is we're not going to be here. But I think about the early church in the year 300, 1,700 years ago stamping out false teaching, preserving orthodoxy. Did they imagine that one day there'd be a church in Queen Creek, Arizona that would be reciting the very creed that they had written down? I think they did. I think they did think about the next generations of the church. I think they did think what we're doing today really matters. I think they did doing what they could to preserve and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And here's what I do know, is that if Jesus hasn't come back by the year 3,700, the church will still be reciting the Nicene Creed. And we're gonna be part of that. Uh, if anything, the central task of our church, of the church, is to pass on the faith once for all delivered to the saints to the next generation. And so that's what we're gonna do today. So what I'm gonna talk about today is what is the creed and so what about the creed? Uh, some of you are going, um, I believe like arguing about words doesn't matter. I wanna convince you that it does. Uh, some of you are kind of going, uh, I, I hear what you're talking about. This is all unfamiliar to me. Uh, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, I'm, today's gonna be a little bit of a mix of a sermon and seminary lecture. And you might be thinking, your sermons always feel like seminary lectures. <laughs> and I want to say, you haven't been in a boring seminary lecture if you think so. I'm not saying I'm the most interesting, but I'm saying I'm more interesting than a seminary lecture. So uh, there's where we go with that. So we're going to talk about the what and the so what. And we're going to hopefully walk out of here feeling responsible to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And able and, and energized into memorizing and putting on our hearts uh, what Jesus gave to the apostles who then gave to us. So let me pray and then we're gonna do what and so what. Nice and creed. 
Uh, Lord, help us. I do ask that you would help us see ourselves uh, kind of like Stephen's guitar earlier as, as a part of this traditioned, ancient, uh, connected uh, faith that our, our grandparents and great, 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 great grandparents of the faith uh, thousands of years ago I hammered these uh, words out and I pray that you'd write them on our hearts and put them on our heads and help us pass them on to our, our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, um, such that thousands of years from now, when we gather as saints in heaven uh, and we recite the creed in unison, that we would see ourselves as part of that uh, passing off of the tradition. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So the what? What is the creed? Here's a little bit of just background information. The creed, uh, here's, here's, I'm gonna have a series of questions. So what or when was the Nicene Creed written? You can go to the next slide. So when was the Nicene Creed written? So the Nicene Creed was uh, written uh, in the 325 there is a version, then in 381 there's another version. The version that we're gonna be reciting is a 381 version. Uh, so it was written in, the, in that fourth century um, time. And here's part of the reason why it happened then. And so uh, it, was, it was written, so where was the Nicene Creed written? The answer to that is in Nicaea. That's the easiest part thing you're gonna learn today. The Nicene Creed was written in, in Nicaea, which is modern day uh, Turkey. There's this little kind of town called Izgid. Is that, uh, Mark Burns can, what is it? Iznik. Mark Burns, who's lived in Turkey, knows how to say that. Iznik, uh, which is now, was Nicaea, now it's called Iznik, and it's kind of this little community. It's in the bridge between the east and the west. Uh, you may not know this, but even like Turkey nowadays is part of Europe and part of Asia. That's part of the reason why that happened there. Uh, it was written in that time, in that place. Question now is like, why was this written? And here's, here's how the story goes, is so Jesus in the first century deposits the faith into the apostles, calls them to pass it on, and then there's a hundred something, hundreds of years of severe persecution. And the church is surviving in the margins, they're passing on the faith uh, in the nooks and crannies of society, and around 320, 325, there's this emperor named Constantine who ends the formal persecution of Christians. And there's this, this like moment of breathing room. We survived. Like some of you, like when you go through trauma, when you go through difficulty, trying to argue about what our, like our family values when you're going through trauma, it's difficult. And so the church is being traumatized and all of a sudden there's this breath of relief and the question asks like, who exactly are we, who exactly are we not? And there is this bishop named Alexander who underneath him had this priest named Arius and Arius was teaching that the son was created by the father. Uh, Arius is now understood as like the teacher of Arianism. They named it after him. Teaching that Jesus was the first creation of the father. And he had these phrases um, that said, there was a time or there was when the son was not speaking of Jesus as a creature, as a made, made person. Here's what Arius said. I have actually a little quote from him. We do not concur with him, that's talking about his bishop, who says, God always, the son always, neither by thought nor by any moment of time does God precede the son. So the orthodox was teaching, neither by thought nor by moment was there a time when the son, when the father preceded the son. He says, we are persecuted because we say that the son has a beginning. There was a time when the son was not. So Arius is teaching, there was a time when the son was not the son had a beginning. This is taking Jesus and making him creature, right? So Alexander condemns the priest underneath him named Arius, says that's false teaching. And then what happens is Arius' followers get all spun up. 
They're marching in the streets, chanting, there was a time when the sun was not, there was a time when the sun was not. This is unjust persecution. Uh, we're not, this isn't false teaching, it's just agree to disagree. And so this gets escalated, 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 and eventually the emperor himself goes, we need to figure that, and so he calls this first ecumenical council. This is what's significant about the Council of Nicaea in 325, is for the first time since the church was birthed, bishops, church leaders from all over the world, from Asia, from Africa, from Europe, from north, south, east, west, gathered together with their scars, with their wounds from recent persecution, and were trying to deal with what they called the Aryan controversy. Now, why does the Aryan controversy matter? Why is it significant to us? Uh, one of the biggest issues we face here in the Southeast Valley and in Arizona in general is the Latter-day Saints or Mormonism. Mormonism teaches Arianism. It feels like sometimes Mormons and Christians agree about everything, but on a fundamental, the very first council, the gathering of the church, the very first heresy the church was addressing and pushing on was Arianism, this teaching that Jesus was created by the Father to condemn it as heresy, to call it not good. And in our current cultural moment, we that are asking anything at the beginning of the year, the two most common questions we got were what about Mormonism, what about Latter-day Saints, and what is heresy? And so that's why we're doing this. There were other creeds, there were other councils that stamped out other false teachings, but Nicaea was the first ecumenical council where all the people from all the church all over the world gathered to like clarify doctrine. And I think it's the most relevant for our moment here as Redemption Gateway. And so Arianism taught this. And then what happens at this council is all the bishops gather together. You know, there's like three, there's, legend has there's 318 people from all over the world, bishops and church leaders who gathered to discuss what do we actually believe about in Jesus. And they try to clarify that Arianism is not biblical doctrine. Arianism is not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The question is not what do we like the question was not, what do we want to be true? The question was not, what do we think, uh, we, do, we, what, do we wanna decide what our theology is? The question is, what is the faith once for all delivered to the saints? And is Arianism a part of that or not? And the answer was definitively no. So here's the notes from the, the, from the synod. It's what they say, is what they say right here. It was unanimously decided that his, Arius' impious opinion should be anathematized, that is, banished or condemned together with all his blasphemies affirming that there was a time when he was not calling him a creature so the whole idea is like you're calling the creator a creature huge problem it goes on to say this these utterances the holy synod so synod means like path or way like they're all together um anathematized, not enduring the hearing of so impious or rather so demented an opinion. They were not super uh, gentle with false teaching. Demented, impious, unholy, irreverent, not okay. So the church council together. And this, it, just imagine this. You have for a couple hundred years, the church is spread out over the world, having this like survival of, of, through all the persecutions. And these 318 bishops gather together at Nicaea. And for the first time, see, there is a universal church. Like we are part of God's people spanning the globe and to span the great part of the globe. And there's, there's a sense of like, we're all in this together. And part of what we saw in the creed is there's this affirmation that there is one holy, universal, apostolic church. So we're not, not only 
Is it the case that we hold Jesus true? But it's also the case that we desire to preserve the purity of doctrine because we're all in this together. So the question of how it was written, uh, the way this developed was in the West part of the church, there's this thing called the Apostles' Creed. Some of you grew up reciting that. The West had the Apostles' Creed. And then the East, there was less formal collective statements. But when they came together, the East said, we don't, have, we don't have this other form of creed. And the Apostles' Creed wasn't really like formally established or written down through a council. It was just a way of summarizing the faith. I mean, this, is, this idea of summarizing the faith is absolutely vital and important. We operate through summaries all the time. Like this is part of the reason we have big ideas in sermons. It's part of the reason why when we're teaching things to our kids or teaching things to other people, like we summarize and then we explain in longer form. On the one hand, the faith once delivered to the saints is the whole Bible. On the other hand, the Nicene Creed is the attempt at summarizing what is the faith, what is the minimum Christian belief. If you read Christian historians or theologians, there's this overwhelming agreement that the Nicene Creed represents the minimum Christian belief. And so the, the, the uh, people all gather together. They have this kind of like, it's not starting from a blank draft. They have this Apostles' Creed. The East comes. They have all these, these various sayings. They gather together. They go, we need to add stuff into this that f- fir- like firmly and absolutely eliminates Arianism, this teaching that Jesus was created by the Father. And so they take the Apostles' Creed. They add a few sentences. Arius is out. The purpose of the creed was to not include someone, which is a little bit tough for kind of t- modern sensibilities where inclusion's always good. Uh, here we're going, we're on purpose not including this false teaching. The goal was elimination. The goal was clarification. The goal was solidification. Which gets me to the next point is what exactly is the Nicene Creed? I'm gonna walk through this with you. Uh, there are some places where it's kind of hard to translate because it's written in Greek and I wanna highlight some of those so you might have heard different versions of it, things like that. So here's what the Nicene Creed is. So the first thing, it's in four parts. Four we believe statements, that what we believe about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And the Son section is by far the longest because it was trying to hammer out this Jesus-centered version of heresy, right? So there's pretty much agreement in this stuff. So first one, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. I was trying to see how hard it is to memorize this. I was getting my son to memorize it. You know, he's three. Okay, Jay, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. And he said, what's Almighty? And so the Latin word there is omnipotent. That's not what I said him, to him, just so you know. Uh, it's, it's all powerful. Like there's, there's other versions of heresies that exist nowadays, like one called open theism, which teaches that God doesn't control the future. That is a huge problem. That's counter to the creed, which is heresy. It's almighty. So, so we have a friend named Alex Shaw who goes here. Um, and I was telling my son Jay, I was like, yeah, almighty means the most strong. And he's like, stronger than Mr. Alex? He's like, yes. He's like, but Mr. Alex is even stronger than you. I said, that's, that's true. So maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, there's, pretty, there's, there's a agreement on this, that God is the omnipotent, the almighty, the maker of all that is seen and unseen. That means everything without exception. There's only two types of things, seen things and unseen things, and God makes all of them without exception. And then we get into the next section on the Son, which is longer. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, 
true God from true God. Just like you can't separate light from light, so Jesus and the Father. And here's this main sentence right here is, not made of one substance with the Father. That phrase substance, some translations say of one being with the Father, of one essence with the Father, of one substance with the Father. The whole point is that Jesus is the exact same amount God as the Father is God. They are the same substance. The, the, the really fancy way to translate that is consubstantial with the same substance. The Greek word is homoousios. And part of the deal was there's this Arian, Arius guy trying to get the word homoousios in there. One letter difference. One means same substance. One means similar substance. Is Jesus like God, similar to God, or is he God? And the orthodox position was he is not similar to God, he is the same as God. The Father is equally God as the Son is equally God. Begotten, not made, meaning he did not come into existence. He was eternally the Son of the Father. Through him all things were made. So he's a creator with the Father. He's his co-creator, co-eternal, co-divine, there you go. Then it goes on this next section. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate in the Virgin Mary and was made man. And here's part of the goal of this is it anchors it in history that Jesus is not an idea. He's not an inspiring shot in the arm. He's not a phantasm, kind of like a ghost that never came, but he had real body, real flesh, really born, really suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's a historical figure. So the first part of the creed affirms his true divinity, that he's truly God, and the second part of the creed is affirming that he's truly human, that he really lived, existed, had a body, and was a man, suffered and was buried, was buried, I don't know why I said buried. And the next one, we got this. Um, on the third day he rose again, amen? In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Next phrase we get is on the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. Notice here how the Son is referred to the Lord and the Spirit is referred to the Lord. We'll get to that later in the book of Matthew when it says that we baptize them into the singular name, Yahweh, Lord, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's a shared name, this connection, this Trinitarian vision. Spoken through the prophets. Next section. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. In the video we watched, it said Christian. I actually think that's not a totally great translation. The word is Catholica, Catholic, which means universal. Some versions of the creed said we believe in one holy and Catholic, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But Catholic's actually not a translation, that's a transliteration. Uh, the word means universal. I also don't want people to think when we're saying the creed, we believe in the one holy Roman Catholic church. Uh, that's not what I think the creed is getting at. The creed is saying like, hey, we're all in this together, all the people who believe in the Lord Jesus across space and time. It's universal. Not necessarily referring to the church that has a pope in Rome, but the church that whoever believes this is part of the universal church. And so some version of the creed will say Catholic, which is accurate. I think the word universal is more clear though. And apostolic, meaning those who follow the teachings of the apostles after Jesus. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And there, I think that's not necessarily referring to like you get baptized and then you're forgiven, but it's saying like this immersion into the person of God through faith that is immediately evidenced by water baptism. Like there's only one way to the Father and it's through this, this connection to Jesus by faith. 
And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And the first version of the creed goes on to say, and anyone who thinks otherwise, let them be anathema. Um, But then later on they took that out because they want to be more general and less specific. But I think that's still true. All right. So, got some questions about the creed. All right, so we're gonna memorize that. We're gonna recite that in our services from now on until we don't wanna do it anymore. So that's kinda how that's gonna be. Um, This is not a, like, we ought to be doing this. I just wanna go, like, let's all memorize this together, write it on our hearts, be able to recite it, pass it on to our kids, and when we interact with our friends and family that are are, are LDS or otherwise versions of heretical, we can at least have some, like, guts to why we agree or disagree about some of this stuff. So, question number one, did the Roman Catholic Church make this stuff up? in 325? Great question. The answer is no. Way before this, the church was clearly teaching that the Son was uncreated and eternal. In the Epistle of Diognetus, one of the first fragmented documents we have that are older than the scriptures, it says this, the creator did not send some subordinate, but the creator of the universe himself sent him as God, sent him as a man to man. Meaning the father did not just delegate his problems to some created being, but the creator himself took on flesh in Jesus Christ. That's good news. He's not just delegating his problems, he's dealing with them himself. Um, Next one we see um, is... uh, I forget who that is. We'll get there. Anyway. Um, for by no other means could we have attained, oh, this is uh, Irenaeus. For by no other means could we have attained incorruptibility and mortality unless we've been united to incorruptibility and immortality. But how could we be joined to incorruptibility and mortality unless first the incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we are so that the corruptible might be swallowed up by the incorruptible and the mortal by immortality that we might receive the adoption as sons. Irenaeus is teaching the reason that we have eternal life is because the eternal one became human and we can be connected to him and so we can be eternal. A more important question than did the Roman Catholic Church make this up is, is it biblical? That's the real deal here. We're kind of trying to be Bible people and the answer is emphatically yes. Deuteronomy says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, there is one Lord. Also says in Isaiah 45, this. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God that the Bible emphatically teaches monotheism, that there is one God without exception. But then you get to the New Testament and other stuff pops up and it says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have the same name and that name is Lord or Yahweh. Now it looks like there's three and there's one. All four of the Gospels talk about the Trinity in this way. Mark 1 says this, and when he came up out of the water, that's Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That you have the father, the son, and the spirit all present at the same time. There's a heresy called modalism that teaches that there's one God and he changes form. This text shows that he does not change form but all three persons are present simultaneously somehow. All right, next one. Luke 10, 21, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, Jesus rejoicing in the Spirit. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will that Jesus isn't talking to himself, he's not schizophrenic, he is talking to a distinct person but who somehow is the same Godness as him. John 1 says it like this very clearly, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
talking about Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, that the word is God, and God takes on flesh. Doctrine of the incarnation. So, this is difficult. John Del Husay, New Testament professor, written a lot of great books on the gospels, an elder at Redemption Church, Alhambra said this, what scripture offers is a paradoxical mystery. The Old Testament reveals that there is only one God. The New Testament reveals that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but that the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. The word Trinity from the Latin Trinitas does not occur in the Bible, but for the first time in Christian literature in Tertullian. So we get is there's one God, the Father's God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. So there's three persons, one God, Trinity, mystery. Part of what in my mind this means is that I have a God who's beyond my total comprehension. If I was gonna make up some God, I would make up a God that I could at least clearly explain. If I was gonna, and, and this here's the deal is, virtually all forms of heresy are trying to add clarity to mystery. Is it difficult making sense that there's one eternal God and he's their persons? Yes, we'll just say this one super God created these other two lesser gods. So you have some hierarchy here. Part of, I, like, I know you're gonna go home and talk to your kids and say like, we learned about the Trinity, that there's one God and he's three persons. That they're all eternally God. And your kid's gonna be like, what? And you're gonna say, exactly. <laughs> but this is part of the reason that these, these controversies exist is we're trying to hold fast to what the Bible clearly teaches is true and to not oversimplify the mystery and at the same time submit ourselves to the wisdom of, of the way that the church has understood and received these things. Now here's the next question, so what? What difference does this make? First one, so what if there isn't one God? Can't we just like have multiple gods? Why not have three gods? Here's the first reason why, is because that would mean that Christianity is a totally different and not continued tradition from the Old Testament. That this is just like some Roman pantheon of gods where the Greeks had all these gods, but the Bible in the Old Testament clearly teaches that there's one God forever, the maker of heaven and earth, the Almighty, and Jesus presents himself as that God, the continuation of that story. That the whole New Testament is the final act in the story that began in the Old Testament. And so if you start teaching that monotheism is false, that there's multiple gods, polytheism, pantheism, whatever you want to call it, you're actually saying that the whole Old Testament does not precede or give birth to the New Testament. You're saying that Christianity was a brand new, out of nothing religion, which is not true. The church understood themselves as the fulfillment of the scriptures. That's why the creeds say this, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures. We even see this in Jude chapter, um, chapter well, there's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude. <laughs> Jude. It says this, Jude 5, now I want to remind you that you once flew in it, that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't some other God. It wasn't some other pantheon. Well, like, that this is, that the same Christ yesterday and forever is from the Old to the New Testament. There's one God. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God's in the New Testament. Not only that, but the unity of the omnipotent one is significant. That there is a ruler in the universe. 
that we're not doing this yin-yang thing where evil's fighting against good and we're not totally sure who's gonna win, that there's one sovereign author over all things. There's one person, uh, one, one God, one Lord who is bringing the world to its conclusion. And so our future, our belief in the future is not some hopeful, wishful thinking, but it's actually a recognition of the fact that God is sovereign over history. Next question, so what if God isn't tri-personal? What difference does that make? A theologian Herman Boving says this, he says, Christians have God above them, the Father before them in Christ and within them in the Spirit. That we have God the ruler, we have God the example and substitute, and we have God the personal leader at the same time. So many like religions like Buddhism wanna kind of only have the Holy Spirit as God, this kind of inward personal thing. Other versions of, of, uh, of religion have like only the, the far off God, like the deists or in Islam, like God is somewhere far off, inaccessible, not close. Other gods have great moral teachers that we wanna follow. In Christianity, we have the ruler, we have the example and substitute, and we have the personal God. And so we get to connect with God on all these different levels. Not only that, and here's what's most significant, that if Jesus was created, that means that God cannot be loved. John 1, or 1 John 4 says that God is love. Now love requires the beloved. You cannot be love if you're the only thing that exists because love is an affection, a regard for, a consideration of the other. Dr. Michael Reeves, not our elder Mike Reeves, but theologian Michael Reeves, said God is love because God is Trinity. That if you wanna have this view or perspective on the world that God is eternally love, you have to have this view that he is tri-personal, that God has existed in loving connection with himself forever, that he's not powerful and then loving, he's actually loving and then powerful. That changes the way we per- perceive and interact with relationships all the time, that God does not create and then become loving, but God is loving in his tri-personal identity from eternity past that the God that you worship and love before he created time, before he created anything else, was content and in perfect relationship with himself. So he has been practicing love eternally. It's not like the father is lonely so he gives birth to the son and now he has something to love and so he becomes loving. So what if Jesus isn't truly human? Why can't Jesus just be only God? Hebrews 2.17 says this, um, if Uh, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That text was heavily reflected on in the early church, that Jesus was like us in every respect. He's not God and similar to us. He is God and he is human. He is truly God and truly human, that he is like us in every respect. He's the same as us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, that Jesus is not theoretically merciful, he's actually merciful. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to have to obey God the Father. He knows what, like he, he perfectly and absolutely gets us. Truly human. Not only that, but in Hebrews, and in the book of Exodus, it says this. When, G, when God the Father is making promises of, of provision for his people, there's conditionality here. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among the peoples for all the earth is mine. So the father in his covenant tells the people, you must perfectly obey to be my treasured possession. And Jesus comes 
the truly faithful Jew, the truly faithful human, and absolutely fulfills all the conditions of the covenant so that we all are now the treasured possession of the Father. That a faithful covenant-keeping human was required in the way that God set things up. Not only, so that's, that's emotionally meaningful because Jesus actually gets me in a way other people don't. Like when I talk to folks who, like I was talking to someone this morning who, uh, who was talking about like when you have a newborn, you don't know what to do. You call someone else who recently had a newborn and neither of you know what to do, but you at least get each other. Jesus gets us. Next question, what if Jesus isn't truly God? What if he's just a human? The only obedient person. What if he's, uh, you know, like, how's it play out? We talked about the tri-personality, the fact that he really gets us. Um, Dorothy Sayers said it like this. Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, was in fact and in truth, in the most exact and literal sense of the words, the God by whom all things are made. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so as to be like God. He was God. What it means is this, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death. He, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. Those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news and good news at that. That God takes his own medicine. That the eternal one does not send some subordinate, but he himself walks in our shoes and is with us. So here's what I'm asking us to do as Redemption Gateway. That we would be a part of contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and memorize the Nicene Creed. That we'd embrace the mystery of the Trinity. Doing our best to explain it where we can but holding fast what the Bible teaches, that there is one God and he is three persons eternally. And my hope is that we as a church would be rooted and grounded in that faith, seeing ourselves as part of this multi-thousand year tradition that for, a long, for as long as Jesus delays his second coming, we'd be part of passing on that faith. Let me pray and we'll receive gratitude. Lord, have mercy on us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be part of what you've established throughout church history. God, I do pray that for those of us who hear about the task of memorizing something and immediately there's just anxiety or shame, uh, help us be patient with ourselves, help us engage in this process. God, I ask that as we recite the Nicene Creed in the weeks and months to come, that you'd help, that you'd help us uh, lift our eyes from the current, present, momentary issues in our culture and our moment and instead see yourselves as part of this church that you are building that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus, thank you for saving us, and I pray that we can celebrate this faith. In your name we pray, amen.